Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy, and uh, we've got a full studio this morning. Wonderful. First up, we have to say a very good morning to Penny Woodward. Hi, Penny. Morning, Pam. Morning, listeners. It's lovely to be here in the daylight and, um, and to have had some good sunny days. It's been fantastic. And it's just amazing how quickly the garden responds when you get a few warm warm days amongst the colder, wetter weather. So my most of my fruit trees are in blossom now, which is Great. really exciting. Yes. Um, although I notice we've got some strong northerly winds predicted for Friday. Oh, so no. it'll be just the perfect time to <laughs> blow all the blossom off. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but, you know, that's gardening, isn't it? It but is. Yes. The world's pretty good as far as gardens go at the moment. And we're still getting the moisture into the soil, which we is fantastic. Are, or there's lots of soil there. There's lots of moisture there in yep. the soil. So the job I would be doing at the moment, if I wasn't still weeding, would be out there doing more mulching. Because if you can get the mulch on now, you're going to keep that moisture in the soil for longer. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. We also have to say a very good morning to Chloe Foster. Morning, Chloe. Good morning, Pam. Thanks for having me on this morning. And Penny, I'm with you. It's so The soil is so wet at the moment yep. that everything in the garden just seems to be puddling. Yes, and yeah. I don't know whether it's a, a hydrophobic thing because it's been no. Know, it's been well, so in dry. my garden, if you dig down, it has yeah. actually gone into the soil. It has gone in good. Yeah, I've been um, going through a couple of lawn areas that are that are you know that puddle with yep. the pitchfork and just aerate to sort of aerate it. And if we mm. do get some more rain, so that the water runs down there. Yes. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. My in my mum's garden in the back corner, it used to if we got really heavy rain, like thirty mil of rain when I was younger, mm. it used to flood. But now in ten mil of rain, the, it, the back corner okay. of the garden floods. Okay. It's really strange, and I can't work it out. I wish I was a soil expert. <laughs> <laughs> it might just be a drainage problem. It could I mean, be. The, maybe there's a drain under there that. Is not working. It's always been anymore. really poorly drained in that okay. back corner, and it doesn't yeah. matter because the lemon tree's there and there's a gum tree as well. Yeah. But um, it used to only flood in super, super, super heavy rain, yeah. but now it sort of floods when we get okay. you know, 10 or 15 mils. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our, our block is sort of sloped, so I don't get yeah. flooding. There's some spots where the water sits for a while, but I've just been so grateful that we've had the rain that's. Oh, yeah. I'm really moistened and fed the soil that um, I'm not complaining. And my tank's oh. full for the summer and, you know. So is mine. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. is exciting and yeah. I'm so glad I don't live in New South Wales or Queensland at the oh, moment. No, yes. that was just horrible. Yeah, it's just, it's Australia, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you have one thing happening down here. I mean, we had yep. snow last week and, you know, they, <laughs> it's they haven't had enough, you know, rain for two or three years. Yeah. Um, I think this. I think uh, a similar thing happened like last year or something. We were in bushfires and they were having yeah. super heavy floods. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's all the extremes that are happening because of climate change. Yeah. And, you know. Yes. We also have to say a very good morning and welcome for the first time to Tom Mullane and Tom is nursery coordinator out at Melbourne Zoo. <laughs> morning, Tom. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, Chloe. And good morning, Penny. Yeah, it's um, lovely to be here, and thanks for having me on. Oh, pleasure! And we're going to we're going to be learning all about what you do out at the nursery there at the zoo. But, and um, what who eats what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's I very hope. apt. 
Yeah, it's certainly, um, I'll just echo uh, Penny's comments before about spring certainly seems to have sprung, you know, like uh, you look out there and, and plants are certainly starting to take off. So it's an interesting time to be in the garden and an interesting time to, to be in a nursery. So, yeah, it's great to be here. And the weeds have taken off too. <laughs> mine, mine had well and truly taken off <laughs> yeah. from last year. I'm still getting them out. Yeah. So. <laughs> Constant battle. Yes. Yeah, they always get going first, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Remember, weeds are only plants in the wrong spot. I, absolutely, that's what I tell my students. A weed yeah. is a plant in a in a. In a and I, spot, look, yeah. I've got so much compost now. It's wonderful. Yes. These huge piles of of greenery that are gradually rotting down, producing all my soil for you know. Excellent. Yep. Yeah, good. So I'm not really complaining. It's just the work that has to be done to get the yeah, weeds where they're supposed to it's be. A bit of hard labour yes. pulling out weeds. <laughs> <laughs> Although I actually quite enjoy it. It's one of my favourite tasks in the garden. Yeah. I, well, I find it quite meditative. Mm. You, know, you don't I, you don't have to think about other things. You yeah. just think about which one you pull out yeah. next. And yeah, you're yes. right. Very mindful. Mm. I tend to do it in patches, so it, I mm. don't get overwhelmed by it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I a good idea. Agree. Yeah, I think weeding um, is, is a job that you've never actually finished. So yeah. you know, you're always going to have to keep just chipping away yep. at it. And there's no point trying to do it all at once because, um, yeah, you're never going to knock it off uh, all in one go. So I just try to keep the seed heads off them, I suppose. Yeah, so they don't yeah I didn't manage that last perpetuate. year for various reasons. And um, at the moment I've got half my garden really well weeded and mulched and the other half is just chaos. So it's quite <laughs> weird walking out there. There's balance to that. I, well, I look, one, yeah. exactly, I look in one direction and I feel really good and I look the other way and think, oh, no, but, you know. Ah, dear. Yin and yang. Yep. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to get to community gardens because it is springtime. There's a lot happening out there. So, uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure our listeners, because being gardeners, they won't care if there's a little bit of rain. Um, it won't stop them going to some of these events. First up, if you uh, really love your orchids, uh, today is the last day of the Maribyrnong Orchid Society Spring Show. The venue is Maribyrnong Community Centre, which is in Randall Street in Maribyrnong. Entry is $5. Uh, the times today are 9am through to 4pm. And, uh, of course, there's going to be fantastic arrays of uh, floral displays. Um, there'll be sales tables, including sprays and Singapore orchids. Uh, there'll be a wide range of orchid products, pots, fertilisers, bark, all sorts of things. And, of course, plenty of uh, potting demonstrations and information if you wish to talk to uh, some of the experts out there. Uh, now, also a reminder to listeners that Tesla's Tulip Festival uh, started yesterday. It's running through until October the 13th, 10 through till 5pm. The address is 357 Monbulk Road in Sylvan. Melways is 123B5. Uh, they're open each day, 10am through to 5pm. And uh, I do recommend going online and looking it up because each weekend they're having a different theme. So, uh, and some themes are particularly geared to children. So you may be interested in trying to coordinate a visit with one of these themed weekends. So, uh, so uh, hop online and you can get all that information there. Now, uh, today is also the last day of the Australian Plants Expo. This is uh, Native Plants Fair. It's being held in Eltham Community and Reception Centre. That's at 801 Main Road in Eltham. Uh, cost adults $5, concessions $4 and children are free 
and uh, this is just an incredible show. They really have to a huge uh, selection of flowering Australian plants. I don't know how they get them all together in the one room, but it's, I certainly recommend that one. Now, uh, also on today, for the last day, is uh, the, uh, for Open Gardens Victoria, the Australian native uh, garden, Yalaroo. And this is at Seven Hillsmead Drive in Narry Warren South. This has been a lot of publicity around this particular garden. Uh, it's the garden of Bob and Dot O'Neill. Um, listeners may have seen it on uh, Gardening Australia a couple of weeks ago. Uh, now, um, it's open 10 through to 4.30 uh, today. Entry is $8. Children under 18 are free. And as well as the garden being open, there'll be plants for sale, tea and coffee available and um, a children's treasure hunt, which sounds fantastic. Can big kids participate in that? Because um, I'm going this afternoon, know. so oh, are you? I might see if I can have go <laughs> in, the, uh, in the hunt. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> yeah, thanks, ben. I'll let you know how I go. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, some more coming up <clears throat> next week. Uh, firstly, next Saturday, there's a uh, Clivia Expo on. Uh, it's only on on the one day, so if you're, if you're into Clivia's, uh, make a note of this one. Running from 10am through to 4pm, there'll be displays, demonstrations and sales. It's at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, 47 Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. Uh, entry is $5, seniors $4, and uh, if you'd like to make more inquiries about that one, 0477 134 863. Now, a couple more I should mention. Um, Again, orchids, there's orchid shows everywhere around Melbourne at this time of the year. Uh, So next Saturday and Sunday, North East Melbourne Orchid Society have got their spring show on. The venue for that one is Bulleen Heights School, which is at 221 Manningham Road in Bulleen there. Time Saturday 9 till 4, Sunday 10 till 4. Entry is $4. Children under 15 are free. Uh, for more information, uh, you can contact Peter on 0418 110345. Uh, now also, uh, the other orchid show that I know is coming up is on September 28th and 29th, that's the following weekend, Maroondah Orchid Society have got their Maroondah Orchid Spring Show. The venue is St Timothy's Catholic School Community Hall, 21 Stevens Road in Vermont. Open Saturday 9 till 5, Sunday 9 till 4. Entry $5 for adults, children under 12, free, all the usual demonstrations and sales. Now, uh, jumping back to next weekend, um, there's also Northern Suburbs Bonsai Club annual show, and the venue for this one is the Bandura Hall. It's at the uh, rear of it. The address is 20 Neurong Avenue in Bandura. Time, Saturday 9 till 5, Sunday 9 till 4. Entry is a gold coin donation. Children are free. Great display of members' bonsai, sales table, Prizes, plenty of outside of on-site parking for that one. And for more information, you can contact Val on 0400 
Now, <clears throat> a few more that we have to get through. As I said, it's springtime and, and there's so many shows on. It's just fantastic. Uh, so coming up next weekend also is the Angair Wildflower and Art Weekend. They're celebrating 20 years of caring for the environment. It's uh, open 10 through till 4 on both days. Uh, it's at the Anglesey Memorial Hall, which is at Macmillan Street in Anglesey. And uh, for more information on that one, 5263-1085, or you can check out their website, which is angair, spelled A-N-G-A-I-R, dot org, dot A-U. Now, uh, next weekend, Open Gardens Victoria have got... <coughs> Uh, a very special garden opening in um, Footscray. Now, this is uh, David's Garden. It's a food garden, and uh, it's an inner-city Footscray, small suburban block. It's been transformed into a productive garden bursting at the seams. Now, at the front of the house, the Footscray Terrace looks like a garden with a plan. Sculptural native plants and hardy succulents weave their way around the bulging trunk of a Queensland bottle tree and spill out into planting on the nature strip. But in the back garden, uh, there's a garden groaning with more than 50 fruiting trees, shrubs and vines, which produce an incredible array of food for the household on a modest 500 square metre block. Uh, Now, the garden owner, David, and his partner established this garden less than 10 years ago and... uh, very few formal plans, but one key desire to grow as many productive plants as possible. Uh, now, it survives with relatively low water uh, consumption this because of composting, mulching and the use of water tanks. And they've got all sorts of um, amazing uh, edibles and exotics, including white sapotes, um, cherimoya, wampi, cold-hardy papaya, various guava and their relatives and numerous grapes derived from North American grape species and uh, as well as, of course, the more familiar ones of uh, citrus, apples, figs and stone fruit, just to mention a few. Uh, now, David's experiencing, experienced in grafting and he's going to give a 20-minute demonstration of fig tree grafting on both days at 11am and a selection of David's ceramic planters and pots will also be available for sale. So the address is 16 Central Avenue in Footscray, as I said next weekend, Saturday 21st, Sunday 22nd, 10 through till 4.30, entry is $8, children under 18 free and as I mentioned at 11am both days David will be demonstrating fig tree grafting and there will be a selection of his ceramic planters available for sale. <clears throat> now, as usual, our good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have given us one free double pass to give away. If you'd like to uh, phone in now, the first person to phone in can have that free double pass. The number to call is 94190155. That's 94190155 to get that, uh, that free double pass to David's garden next weekend. Just a couple more that I have to get through. Uh, Coming up on Monday the 23rd of September 
There's going to be a talk about Australian mistletoes in the environment. This is taking place down at the Australian Garden Auditorium in Cranbourne Gardens. They're on the corner of Botanic Drive and Bellato Road there in Cranbourne. And uh, it's all about, as you've gathered, mistletoes. Mistletoes are extraordinary plants that require other plants as hosts so that they can survive. Mistletoes um, also rely on uh, only very small, one only very small Australian bird to make sure that they do not become a statistic um, or listing as extinct. Uh, and they're important hosts for, um, for the uh, imperial Jezebel butterflies. Now, uh, they're evergreen, semi-parasitic plants, uh, which have root-like growths known, uh, which uh, penetrate the outer layers of branches in order to gain moisture and nutrients from the host plants. Uh, and the talk will cover all sorts of um, information about these amazing uh, plants. Now, Peter Rogers, president of Ringwood Naturalist Club, is going to be the speaker, and he's become very enthralled with these amazing plants over the last 20 years, and he's travelled throughout Australia to observe and photograph uh, mistletoes in the wild. Now, after the talk... They'll have a wander in the gardens, bushland, to observe some of the mistletoes at very close quarters. Now, the cost, members $20, non-members $25, students $10, and uh, funds raised from this event are used for projects uh, within the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria Cranbourne Gardens. Uh, now, you can download the booking form by uh, simply jumping online and going to uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria, then clicking on Cranbourne Gardens, and it should all come up for you. Uh, <coughs> something else taking place at, Tran at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens is the Australian Native Orchid Show. This is hosted by Berwick Orchid Club. Uh, this is taking place Tuesday 24th of September and running till Sunday the 29th of September, 9 till 4.30 each day. As I said, it's happening down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens and free entry for that one. There'll be huge displays and plants for sale. And just very finally... Um, You've got a huge pile of paper there, haven't you, Pam? I have. I'm working my <laughs> way so through. There's so much going on at the moment in Melbourne. <laughs> it's just unbelievable, but I am getting there. It's this okay. Is, this is the last one. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, up at uh, Cloud Hill... Um, Ian Maha is going to be uh, visiting again and he'll be conducting a letter-cutting workshop on the weekend of October 26th and 27th. Now, this is one for the diaries. Um, now, Ian hasn't been up to Cloud Hill for a little while, but he has conducted these workshops before and they're very, very popular. Um, there's only... Uh, they're limited to only a very few people and... Uh, <coughs> This is an opportunity to be able to book to take part in one of these uh, letter-cutting workshops. Uh, <coughs> he su Ian supplies the stone and tools, and participants pick up the gist of the craft in uh, two days. Proficiency takes a little longer, and everyone takes home something handsome enough to install into their own garden. Uh, tickets are $400, but as I say, that's, you've got all the tools and the materials supplied, uh, now, there are only eight places, which means everyone gets lots of one-on-one -on -one attention, uh, so you do need to be uh, quick 
on that one. So if you want to, uh, uh, Ian will also be working in the garden uh, during uh, Saturday the 19th, running right through until Sunday the 27th on a piece that's going to be installed in Cloud Hill Garden. So you're free to wander up into um, Cloud Hill and watch him at work during 19th to the 27th. Or if you'd like to uh, take part in uh, one of these special workshops um, to book, you need uh, to call Jeremy, and his number is 97511009. That's 97511009. Oh, we got there. <laughs> we got there. The OG, the, the Open Gardens Victoria Pass is already gone. So congratulations okay. to the listener that rang up for that. Great. Enjoy. They're going to enjoy that yeah, for sure. Yep. So it is high time we asked our uh, listeners if they'd like to join us and ask a gardening question. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team. We have Penny Woodward, Chloe Foster and Tom Lane in the studio. Or if you'd like to have a chat on the outside line, this morning we have Carol on the outside line. You can give her a call on 94198377. Tom, let's have a chat about the nursery at the zoo. Sure, let's. <laughs> I gather basically you're, you're having to propagate a heck of a lot of plants for very, very hungry butterflies along with other animals. Yeah, that's right. So I'm the nursery coordinator there. Uh, the, the nursery employs two full-time staff, um, and we're tasked with maintaining a range of different food plants for a range of insects. Um, but you're right, predominantly uh, caterpillar food plants to, to provide uh, butterflies for the zoo's butterfly house. Um, and the other really significant thing we do is grow food plants for Lord Howe Island stick insects. Ah, right, yes. So, yeah, the, the butterfly caterpillar side of things sees us growing 15 or, or, or 20 uh, different species of food plant for 15 or 20 different uh, caterpillars and, and resulting butterflies. So, yeah, wow. they're pretty specific. Um, yep. You know, the, in, in most cases, it's uh, one species of plant for, for one species of butterfly, so... Yeah, highly sort of host-specific, I suppose. Yes, yes. It's the weirdest type of horticulture because you're growing things for insects and caterpillars to, to destroy eat them. and destroy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you learn over the years to reverse your thinking a yeah. little bit. And right. that, um, you know, high degrees of damage. You don't get upset when it comes back totally denuded. <laughs> no, that's actually a success story yeah. in, uh, in, in our sort of little corner of, of the world. So, right. um, yeah, it's, it's a bit different to... So I guess, you know, your backyard or something where you're, where you're trying to minimise that sort of damage. Yes, yes, amazing. Now tell us more about the, the Stick Insect Project because this, is, this has been an amazing um, little project, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So the Lord Howe Island Stick Insect is in many ways, I guess, one of the more uh, direct uh, contributions that the horticulture team at Melbourne Zoo is able to make to the uh, you know boots on the ground sort of conservation work um, that the zoo's doing, um, it really is a, a remarkable story. Um, the stick insects were considered extinct for you know uh, 50, 50 years or uh, um, or more, um, and and it's still one of the world's uh, rarest insects. Uh, and in the the zoo's had a, a population, an, an insurance population of stick insects since two thousand and three when. Um, a, a group climbed uh, Ball's Pyramid, which is a rocky outcrop off Lord Howe Island, and, and found 
individual insects out there. A pair of those were sent to Melbourne and, and we've been breeding them ever since. Um, that insurance population is critical to ensuring that the species evades extinction um, and the plan uh, is to, to sort of develop the, the genetics uh, of the population that we have in captivity um, and in 2017 another expedition was run out to, to Ball's Pyramid to, to find more individuals um, and, and they're sort of founders for, for, for developing a, a, a broader genetic base um, mm-hmm. in, in captivity. Um, moving forward, the, the, the plan is ultimately to see the stick insects released back, back. Into, their, um, into their sort of home, home habitat one day. Um, there's still a lot of steps to go through before, before that's a, a reality. But, um, yeah, the zoo... The Lord Howe Island Board and, and numerous other agencies are, are doing lots of important work um, in, in that sort of field. Mm. So myself and a colleague of mine have recently returned from Lord Howe Island. Um, we visited out there to do some reveg work on a, a small island in the lagoon. Um, Lord Howe Island's a big sort of sea shape um, for anyone who's not familiar with it. And in the middle of that lagoon is a uh, small island called Blackburn Island um, and there's there's a possibility that in the future that site would be used as a potential sort of soft release site right. to witness or to, to survey how the insects use the vegetation. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a, there's a lot of work still to be done on Blackburn Island to make sure that it is... Um, has the right range of species on it, both food plants and non-food plants, for the stick insects, so that there's habitat out there um, for it to, to one day maybe feature in, in, a, in a sort of re-release program. Yes, but right. Yeah, Melbourne Zoo and the Lord Howe Island Board have been sending us and, and, and uh, Lord Howe Island Board staff out there to work with volunteers uh, to plant tube stock. And, yeah, it's been a fantastic project. I've been really pleased to be part of it. Can who, can who, sorry, like Penny. Just, can you describe... The stick insect, right? Us, what uh, sort of size it again. is, and, and yep. So they're not not as they don't look as much like a stick as some other stick insects I've seen. I'll put it that way. Um, one of the uh, common names for them many many years ago, I believe, was tree lobsters. Okay. Um, oh. Because yeah. they do have almost <laughs> a, a more sort of crustacean appearance. There, okay. um, being a nocturnal species, I guess that's that's what they're using as as their form of. Defence, I suppose, rather than mm. looking just like a stick, um, they're sort of out at night when when perhaps not so many of their predators are. But they they probably get up to about six inches, seven inches long. And how, um, how old ones. would they be by the time they got you know, uh, what sort of lifespan? I think we have had them for eighteen months, two years. Individuals living yep. about that long. Um, not not specifically being on the on the insect breeding side of them. I'm, I'm not yeah, hundred yeah, percent certain if that's right, but um, I'm sure my colleagues would uh, either confirm or correct me on that one. But um, yeah, I, I believe they live for around you know up to eighteen months, two years okay. in captivity. Um, but we're not too sure how how long they would have lived, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a wild creature with a, a broader um, genetic diversity. Mm. They, yeah. I think they look like a creepy crawly from out of Indiana Jones. Like they're okay. just, they look nothing <laughs> well, like. Yeah. They look like a stick insect that's eaten a million other stick insects. They're really thick. Okay. Yeah, they're quite beefy. Yeah. Um, the males in particular on steroids, have... Yes. yes. Seriously, I think they've been on steroids. <laughs> the, males, the males in particular have quite sort of beefy um, hind legs and spurs, and they yeah. believe that that might be a sort of um, a, a 
selection factor for, for mating and whatever. Um, but yeah, like I said, they don't look like a sort of goliath or a spiny mm. um, stick insect. Mm. They are much sort of thicker and, and more stout, I suppose. Mm. So pre- presumably this is why whoever was climbing the rock and discovered them realised, wow, that's this right, is not yeah. your average stick yeah, insect. Yeah, that's right. So they were, thought to, they were thought to not exi- yeah. exist. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I believe they may have even been people visiting Ball's Pyramid that shouldn't have been. Oh. I, I don't think you're actually allowed yep. to just access yeah. Ball's Pyramid. Yep. Um, well, but it's yeah. also not easy to access. No, and incredibly dangerous. Yeah. So there were stories and reports and sort of rumours that maybe there was something out there. Um, and then, yeah, uh, many, many years ago now, they sort of got organised and, and, and sent some people out there to, mm. to find out once and for all, and they, they did. They found several pairs. So. But the, the insect at its different life stages looks quite different. So when it's young, it's a tiny green. It looks a little bit like a praying mantis, Okay. little um, little yeah. green insect, and then it turns into this blacky brown, meaty-looking yeah, land the, lobster. The nymphs are quite, quite sweet. Um, yeah. They're um, tiny, and, and as Chloe said, they sort of look a little bit more, um, you know, like a... a a, uh, praying mantis, praying mantis, or something like that. I guess. Um, and then, yeah, they're they're diurnal, so they're out during the day, and mm. they they you know you'll see them in the enclosures in in a captive setting. You'll see them throughout the day, and then as they go through several molting stages, they um, will start to sort of they're very gregarious. They'll sort of clump together, and as they get a little darker, they start to become sort of more nocturnal, and then. Before you know it, they're mm. um, yeah spending spending their days sort of tucked away, and then they come out to feed at night. There was a story on Gardening Australia probably about a month ago of what you guys do in the nursery and at the zoo. So if people want to try to visualise what we're talking about, um, you can probably jump on the Gardening Australia Facebook page and find the clip. Yeah, that's a really good idea. My colleague Tom Gleeson um, did that did that spot on Gardening Australia, yeah. and that's uh, yeah a really good uh, sort of summary, I guess, of what we're doing in the nursery and what we're talking about today. Mm. Yeah. Is Melbourne Zoo the only place that's that, that's part of this breeding program, or have they farmed some out to a few other places as well? No, that's right. So they've been sent to other zoos around the world. I think right. a zoo in Budapest and a zoo in the States, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, there's also a private breeder, I believe, in New South Wales, and the Lord, oh. the Lord Howe Island Board has a captive population, as does the Lord Howe Island Mu- Museum, I believe, also has a, a small captive population as well. Bristol Zoo's had a bit of success with them too, haven't Yeah, they? Bristol England? Zoo, that's another one. Yeah, I yep, can't remember absolutely. the name of the one in the US either. Yeah. Okay. It's Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it was a if it was a Monday or a Tuesday, I'd have that one. <laughs> <laughs> and and what's their what's their natural predator? Uh, so their natural predator on Lord Howe Island would have been uh, possibly the currawongs and a boobook owl out there, Lord Howe Island boobook owl. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they believe that you know that those things would have helped control the numbers. Um, I'm not too sure. Um, not being, you know, a real bird expert, but I'm not too sure of the state of the population of that boobook owl on Lord Howe Island. So that's one of the things that's important about the um, this sort of re-release program is that it's done carefully, yeah. sensibly, because if there's other things in the in the ecology that have changed in the time that the uh, stick insects haven't been there, you wouldn't want to release them and have you know, do a do huge population of boobook owls ready to pounce. <laughs> yeah, or the other way around. Yes. Yeah, that they're not there. Yes. and the um, stick insect population is, um, is I guess, 
unvetted. Yes. And, and starts to, you know, potentially decimate all the flora on the island. Mm. Yeah, the other yes. Things. Well, and I think originally it was, was it rats that um, caused one of the, like, caused the ex- yeah. extinction of them originally yep. when, when it was settled yep. by white people? Yeah, a, a boat called the Macambo ran aground um, on the backside of the island. I, I don't know the date. Um, in the 30s but, or something, but I they think. believe that Maybe they believe that rats um, got off the boat then. So. Right, because they're such a meaty insect, the rats just would have oh, gone yes. for it. Yes. Yeah. So, presumably, with the, with a bit of water in between on the island, do they know if there's no rats or they don't believe that there's rats on Blackburn Island? Yep. On, on the small island. Well, that's at least a good starting point. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sort of. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very interesting. And as I said, it's um, great as a horticulturist working in a zoo to be able to have such a direct uh, uh, input into these sorts of conservation mm. efforts. And, mm. yeah, myself and my colleagues in the in the hort department are sort of thrilled to be part mm. of it. So it's, yeah, really interesting work. So what's the actual plant that they eat? They eat uh, a few different things. We're, we're learning more and more what they would have likely eaten on the island. So... Uh, when I first started at the zoo, we fed them on uh, Malaluka howiana, um, and uh, in addition to that, we were feeding them on tree lucerne, uh, Chamaecystis parmensis, okay. which doesn't exist on the island, um, okay. but is is a a popular plant as a as a sort of food plant in zoos. Um, and when they came off Ball's Pyramid, they didn't know what they ate. Yeah. So they put what they had in front of them, which was tree lucerne, and they ate it. Right. So they continued to feed them that. Um, in the time that I've been there, the keepers at Melbourne Zoo have done a huge amount of work into what the stick insect would likely have been eating on Lord Howe Island. On Ball's Pyramid, we knew it was eating uh, Malaluka howiana because that largely is all that's there. Right. Um, there's a few other exceptions to that. There are a few other plants on, on Ball's Pyramid. But we were confident that they were eating the Malaluka Howiana, so they've always been fed that. We got special permit from the Lord Howe Island Board in 2003 to have Malaluka Howiana uh, growing here um, at, at Melbourne Zoo. Um, but we've added a lot to that in those last few years. So mm. we now feed um, Belogia inafilla, Cryptocaria triplinervus, uh, a few different um, plants that are sort of endemic to, to Lord Howe Island, um, an endemic species of um, lilypilly called Zizigium phalagari. Um, some really interesting things that, you know, you mm. just wouldn't see mm. and, and, and uh, I certainly hadn't heard of un- until I got more involved in this, in this program. Um, and, you know, Ficus macrocarpa, which exists on, on Lord Howe Island as well. So sorry, Tom, it's macrophylla. I've been oh, correcting sorry. you for years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I'll beat you up later. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here, Chloe. Thanks for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... There's a particular variety of, yeah, of that co- ficus that grows on Lord Howe Island. Columnaris That's out right. there, which I was expecting them to be growing great, big, tall, narrow, sort of like... Um, like a like column. A, yeah, like a column, like a, a pear tree or whatever. But it's columnaris, which refers to actually the, the prop roots, the, um, the aerial roots. Oh, right. It's a, it's a you know, all, um, all, all sort of banyans do that, that 
that root propping, but the um, the columnaris subspecies out there is particularly prone to it, mm. and these massive sort of <coughs> giant ficus trees, almost sort of propped, growing along the ground, almost like a a ground cover that's ten metres tall. Mm. So fantastic! Really interesting. Yeah. yeah, really interesting subspecies. So give us an idea of how much one stick insect would eat. Like how quickly are you having to produce more? Yeah, it's it's a hard one to answer, I suppose, because they have um, small groups of stick insects in small enclosures when where they're sort of controlling who breeds with whom. Um, and then in free range houses, they have multiple stick insects in in a you know in a, a greenhouse the size of this room. Um, it's hard to get a feel for how much one eats because there's not many situations where we have one stick Just insect one. on one yes. plant. Okay. But the plants are left in with the stick insects for a week. Okay. Um, and in for, for the, the food plants that they're particularly partial to, that'll leave a plant that's, you know, 1.2 metres high and, and 500 mil wide, that'll leave it completely leafless right so yeah they do have an appetite mm, yeah. um, they go to town on them the keepers tell me they're fairly messy eaters so they actually sort of uh scissor off whole portions of leaf and they fall on the ground and so, ah. so they're not all that efficient feeders i okay. suppose they're, okay. they're not necessarily <laughs> ingesting every skerrick yes of, right. of that that plant a lot of it's Waste. going on the ground yeah. and yes. getting swept up the following morning yes um but yeah they do fairly significant damage to the plants mm. and I guess that's why you know that's where we come in if if it was a case of just having a few plants and rotating them around and they mm. just have a little nibble then we wouldn't need to keep quite so many as we do and that's that's <laughs> another criteria for plant selection with the food plants there is is it going to grow back really well mm. is the plant going to grow back or is the plant going to die if it gets decimated by the insects yes and yeah the ficus definitely comes back and the the yeah. Malaluca comes back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so at know, least you're not propagating new plants each time. Not no, every time. Not. No, yeah. so we, we use plants again and again. Um, we rotate uh, the same plants back through our system and, you know, there's replacements as part of that. So mm. we're, we're always sort of growing new stuff and um, producing, you know, new plants at the right time so that things can be retired and... Um, yeah, and from time to time, with the sort of pressure we're putting plants under, some of them do sort of succumb to it and go to the great rainforest in the sky, as they say. <laughs> so, yeah, we're constantly replacing, but we're constantly using plants again and again yeah. as well. Yes. But so that's what would happen in the wild, isn't it? That's right. No, yeah. so some plants would die, some would grow back again. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say, this is one of the things I love about this program, is I had no idea when I came in this morning that I was going to find out all about the Lord Howe Island stick in to eat. <laughs> Habits. And <laughs> yeah, I know. Always learn something. I, I listen. I listen to the show every like. I listen every week. If I miss it, I I, mm. I catch up on the on podcast. podcast. Yeah. Because I learn something. Yeah. All the time. Mm. Whoever's on. Yep. It's, I just love it. It's yep. so cool. Yeah. Well, I've learnt the proper name for ficus macrophylla. So. <laughs> Next time, next time you say it, please say macrophylla. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, that number again. If you'd like to join us, particularly if you'd love to uh, to have a chat to Tom, and uh, maybe you've got some questions for him too, the number is nine four one nine zero one double five to speak to the team on air, or if you'd like to have a chat to Carol on the outside line, nine four one nine eight three double seven. Penny. 
Let's go to you because you've got a few things to talk about too this morning. Okay, well, could I start just by mentioning um, something that's happening in a couple of weeks' time? Sure. Um, so, well, it's more than a couple of weeks, but Sunday the 13th of October between 11 and 3 in the Victoria Gardens in Paran is the Spring Into Gardening um, which Festival, which is a sustainability festival. And um, Costa's going to be there. Oh, fun. And your mate and mine, Jim Fogarty, is right. going to be there giving a talk. I'm there giving a talk and Sarah Otiri, um, whom I don't really know, but apparently she's a Master Chef winner and she's very into food waste and um, saving money and all that sort of okay. thing. Okay. So uh, we're the four main um, speakers. There's some and big, big names, Penny. <laughs> some horticultural <laughs> hotshots. <laughs> um, but it's, there's going to be a lot of stands and um, other people. I'm doing a talk on the main stage about tomatoes, but then I'm doing one on my own stand about garlic. So I'm covering both my main Excellent. topics. You need to write a book on basil next oh, and then you'll okay. be fine. Right. Yes. Because they all, all go right. really well together. <laughs> Any other homework, Chloe? <laughs> Um, so there's back there's um, backyard beekeeping, worm farming, zero waste Australia, sort of various other stands, lots of activities for kids, free workshops, expert demonstrations, and um, hands-on children activities, and a whole range of market stalls. So, Excellent. So it, it looks it looks like being a really a really good day. So even if you don't listen to the talks, you can go and chat to people on the stands. So just give out the date again. Pete. Sunday the 13th of October between 11 and 3, and it's in the Victoria Gardens, which are on High Street. They're a beautiful garden. Have you ever They're, wandered through uh, there? Not recently, no. So I was actually quite pleased to see that that was where it was because <laughs> yeah. I was going to get to go and have a look. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's some, we do have some fabulous gardens. I know, I, and a lot of them are hidden away and the yeah. general public don't realise they're exactly. there. Exactly, yeah. When I wandered through the Victoria Gardens last time, I also noticed that they'd planted a whole lot of produce plants just for people to... To pick a few herbs, herbs or and things, yeah, which is great. I love that idea that you know, there's the they don't frown on you taking a few leaves and yes. um, picking a bit of fruit yes. and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. And I was just going to say after um, when I was here last time, we had I'm sorry I've forgotten his name, but from Ripon Lee. Um, so I was staying with my daughter and we decided to go and have a wander around Ripon Lee and saw all the cutting beds there and, oh, the, right. and the fruit trees, all the apple and um, pear trees just coming into Boston and just so beautiful. I yes. hadn't been there for a few years, so it was really nice to have another look Excellent. at it again. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. That was Matt yes, Chester. Matt, that's right. Yes. Chris, no. yeah. 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 Excellent. So okay. That's one of the hidden right. gardens in there. And the other thing that I'm doing is the weekend after that, which is the... Well, it's the Thursday the 17th and the Saturday the 19th of October, and this is for our Tasmanian listeners, because I know we have a few of them, yeah. is the Tas- big Tasmanian Botanic Gardens tomato seedling sale. So um, if you want some really unusual, again, tomato seedlings, um, and particularly these orange tomatoes with the cis lycopene in it, which I was talking mm-hmm. about last time, um, that's on those two days. So, or if you are thinking about going down to Tassie and you'd like to do it for that week, that's the 17th and the 19th. And I'm doing, I, I think, some talks about tomatoes. And I think Karen might be too, but they haven't sent us the timetable yet. Okay. <laughs> so we're not quite sure exactly when. But <laughs> okay. um, Karen and I will both be there on Thursday the 17th and I'll be there on the Saturday the 19th. Right. Does the Botanic Gardens grow 
a whole heap of tomato They do. If you go onto their Facebook page, okay. you can see all these amazing thousands. Yep. Last year they had 5,000 seedlings. Oh, wow. wow. And they are so, they've been doing this now for 10 or 12 years, and they are so good, good at growing tomato seedlings. They're right. the healthiest tomato seedlings I have ever seen. Yep. And they're just fantastic. If us Victorians went down there, mm. how are we allowed to bring them back? Absolutely. Okay. You can't take things into Tasmania. You can take them out. Oh, there. great. No problem. I know people, including Karen, who <laughs> took two huge bagfuls of tomatoes on the aeroplane with her. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so as a carry-on? As a carry-on, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, no, you can, certainly, you can certainly take them back. But if you want to get more than that, you might want to take your car down with you on the ferry. Great idea. So, but yeah, it's there is and some, they're all heirloom and the, they're all varieties. interesting heirlooms. These we've got all these new ones from um, from New Zealand this oh. time. Um, these particular orange ones, but the list is on the Facebook page. So it's um, RTBG heirloom tomatoes. If you put that into Facebook, you'll you'll see the list yep. and you'll you can see pictures of them all growing and they're just at the point where they're about to transfer them into the bigger pots, so that they'll be ready for sale. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So. Yes, so that's what the couple of weeks in October is for mm. me. Mm. Yeah. Now you've also got a book I've there you want to talk about. I've got a book here that I wanted to talk about, and it sort of ties in with what I was talking about last time about um, the research that's going into the phytochemicals found in fruits and vegetables. We're finding out all these new things about how important these phytochemicals are. So they're not strictly nutrients, but the colour of the fruits and vegetables are usually there to protect the plants in some way. Um, but it turns out that they're also really beneficial for us. So while not being nutrients, they do they are antioxidants and they help protect us from all sorts of diseases and things. So this idea that, that we should be eating our colours, which mm. has been something that's been around for a long time, yeah. we're now finding scientific research that backs it up. Mm. So things like lutein, which is, a, which is an antioxidant, which is what gives you yellow in yellow tomatoes, for instance, um, and also yellow in yellow nasturtium flowers. That's that has been found to help with um, with macular degeneration in the eye. Um, okay. So you actually find eye doctors telling people to increase your lutein in your diet, but it also helps with um, cognitive decline. So if you're worried about your memory, mm. um, you should be eating a bit more lutein. But there's a whole range of of this. So this wonderful man, Paul Williams who has a PhD but he's not a, not a medical doctor. I think he's a microbiologist or okay. something. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, he, he has done this amazing research on phytochemicals and summarised it all in this self-published book. Um, and it is really interesting. And it, it's just called Feast on Phytochemicals. He's a Queenslander. Um, and I think it's a terrific book. If you want to find out you know, what's in ginger and what's in... Um, you know various other plants so it's not just you know reds and yellows and oranges it's also yeah. the greens there's all sorts of things in the green parts of the plants and I'll just read you a little bit that um, uh, many of the phytochemicals in fruits vegetables herbs and spices provide health benefits through the same actions as common drugs such as aspirin and antihistamines and when they're eaten in normal quantities don't have the side effects that can be associated with drugs for example, cherries can help reduce gout symptoms, ginger can reduce inflammatory pain and nausea, cinnamon helps lower blood sugar levels, citrus fruit provide antihistamines to help reduce hay fever symptoms, drinking tea and eating dark chocolate can improve blood flow, 
reducing blood. That's what mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just gave our thumbs up. Very happy. Tea contains a phytochemical used in some asthma bronchodilator medications, while garlic and pomegranate can help reduce plaque formation in arteries. So one of the things I love this about this is he is obviously a real science nerd yeah. because yes. the last 40 <laughs> pages, I think, in the book are all his references. Oh, wow. Goodness so you me. can go back and oh, see geez. the research Gosh. Um, and follow it, follow it up. Yes. Um, and so it's called Feast on Phytochemicals. We've put it, the cover up on the, on the um, Facebook, page. Facebook page. His name is Paul uh, Williams. Uh, but he has a website, so if you want to get a hold of the book, it's Phytochemical Feast, and Phytochemical is P-H-Y-T-O, so phyto meaning um, leaf, I think. Phyto is leaf. Um, phytochemicalfeast.com. So, uh, so that's all you that's all you need to put in, and the book is thirty dollars if you would like to buy it and find out, you know, some of the things that you, the, some of the phytochemicals that are in what which fruit and vegetables and how they should be eaten. And I think the only drawback of the book is that there's so much research happening that as soon as it was published, it was already out really? of date. Yes. But mm. it's a really good basis for um, discovering, you know, what you what you can and should yeah. be eating and, and, and what, why. And what you read out then, easy to read, easy to understand Absolutely. as well. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. Really well, it's really well done. Yeah. That's real, I was actually driving in this morning because I, I was at work yesterday at the nursery and there was flowers everywhere and yep. I was sneezing away yep. all day. I had to have an antihistamine. I thought, surely there's a food. I'm so glad that you bought this booking because I thought, surely there's a food or something I can eat yep. that would have antihistamine yep. properties in it yep. that I can just chow down, at, you know, yep. while I'll have some lemon Look, juice before work next time. Some of You always have to be careful with this sort of thing because yeah. you don't want to stop taking a medication that you're taking on the basis that you're now going to eat this food that's got this some of these yeah, we're putting out a massive disclaimer right now. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. <laughs> but but it is it is a it's a really good indication of how important it is yeah. to eat your colours in your yeah. diet, and mm. and you will just not develop the problems yeah. in the first yes. place if yeah. you've good got point. these colours in your diet on a regular mm, basis, and particularly if they're organic or grown in your own garden. Absolutely. Because the other thing that is very clear is that. To have the high levels of phytochemicals, you need to be in a garden where the plants are needing to repel insects and stuff like that. So mm. they're not um, being sprayed with a whole lot of pesticides. Mm. Uh, so the, the the more organic the garden is, the higher the phytochemicals are. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Anyway, I just thought people might like to have yeah. read about it. And if you're at all nerdy on this, this is a book that everyone knows. So, Penny, could you just, uh, for listeners, repeat the author's name, the title sure. of the book, and where do you know where it's available from? Well, as far as I know, it's only available on his website. Only on his uh, website. Maybe on Amazon. I'm not sure. Okay. But I don't buy anything from Amazon. So, um, Fair enough. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my peculiarities. Um, so it's called Feast on Phytochemicals. Um, and it's P-H-Y-T-O, Chemicals. And um, his name is Paul R. Williams. And his website is phytochemicalfeast.com. So the phytochemical feast is all, all one word. If yes. You just put that into your search engine and they're $30. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, Tom, you've brought in an array of plants. And I presume all of these are used at the zoo as edible plants, are they? The whole lot? Two are, two are, and two are not. Okay. So I've brought in two ornamentals and two food plants, uh, one of which you do see around 
as an ornamental. Okay. Well, let's talk about the food plans first. Yep, sure. So I'll start with Melaleuca howeana, which I touched on earlier. Uh, it's endemic to Lord Howe Island, uh, makes only a small medium shrub, sort of not, not really. I, I didn't see them any larger than about three and a half, four metres in the time that, that, in the times that I visited Lord Howe Island. Um, it grows in remarkably harsh and exposed locations. It's an incredibly tough, uh, resilient plant, uh, windy, rocky, steep, coastal exposure. Um, they're the sort of locations you see this plant in, so much so that they're often dwarfed and, and have adopted a sort of bonsai form due to the elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I said earlier, one of the very few species of plant Found on on Lord on on Ball's Pyramid, um, so that yeah, believed to be the the plant that was sustaining the small population of Lord Howe Island stick insects prior to the sort of commencement of the recovery effort. Uh, so that yeah, it's always been an essential staple in our captive uh, breeding efforts. Uh, we had to get a special permit to get this plant off Lord Howe Island uh, and for us to grow it in in Melbourne, uh, and we grow it for stick insect rearing purposes only. Yep. Uh, aside from that, it, it looks very much like a lot of other Melaleuca. Um, you know, Melaleuca ericifolia, I think, is is pretty close sort of mm-hmm. uh, comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, the fruit and flower, which we see very little of in Melbourne, is sort of typical of the genus and not especially showy, small um, lemon cream sort of flowers. Um, and followed by those small, hard seed capsules. Um, But, yeah, as I said, we don't see a lot of fruit and flower in Melbourne. I think that's a climatic thing, but also the fact that we're constantly feeding them off. Yes, of course. um, And using them as as a sort of food plant. Uh, They never sort of get to that mature, fruiting, flowering sort of stage. Yes, right. But, yeah, an interesting plant. And, yeah, when when I was on Lord Howe Island doing some of the um, re-veg work, I was lucky enough to have a day off and do some of the amazing hiking on the island there. Um, and it, that was a great opportunity to see some of these plants in their sort of home home ranges rather than just seeing them in, in a nursery context. Yes. And I was just astounded at the locations that this plant was able to grow in, literally growing out of uh, rock crevices mm. in, in what appeared to be almost a sort of intertidal zone. I don't know if that's true. Wow. But, okay. Um, certainly very close and, and, and must be influenced by the salt water in some way, whether it's directly or not. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, just a, a remarkably resilient, tough plant. And I think about the, you know, one sitting in my nursery that we're worried, oh, did I water them on Friday afternoon? <laughs> or, and, yes. and then you see them just in these incredible locations. And they, they probably thrive on neglect. It yeah. doesn't matter if you water them or not. <laughs> it so, so, Tom, am I right to assume that you're not going to buy this in your local nursery? No, you absolutely aren't. Yep. Um, yep. I brought it in more or less as a bit of an oddity and yep. just because it's such a great But if link. you're at the zoo, would you be able to see it? Uh, we don't have any... Um, any sort of ornamental plantings of it. So it's a nursery plant. Um, I think, you know, going forward with uh, some of the stick insect displays and whatever, that's one thing we'd really like to bring in, is start to display some of these food plants and sort of tell that story about how we used to feed them on this and we've, Mm. you know, all this work has Mm. been done into Mm. into the, the other 
flora that that the insect would have likely um, been been dependent on. So yeah, we, it, it'll probably feature in displays in the future. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. And the other plant, Tom? Okay, so the other plant is Hemigraphus colorata. Common name is purple waffle plant, um, which, as you'll see, it's got that sort of wavy uh, leaf margin and that sort of waffled leaf surface, which is obviously where it gets that name. Uh, we grow it as, as a food plant for lurcher and in the past, although we don't have any at the moment, um, brown soldier butterflies. Um, I brought this one in because it's uh, you know relevant to my work as as uh, a nursery coordinator for for invertebrate food at Melbourne Zoo, um, but it is also one that you do see occasionally at um, uh, garden centres and um, hardware stores or whatever as a as a um, as a ornamental plant. Mm. So it's a very low growing um, and and tolerates low light sort of foliage plant. Um, attractive dark green foliage with uh, rich sort of purple undersides, which are quite attractive. Uh, grows easily from cuttings and, yeah, it makes a, a, a fairly handsome um, foliage plant in, a, in an indoor setting and will tolerate pretty low light. Um, yeah, so it would, would go extremely well as an indoor plant, I would Yeah, imagine. yeah, they're, yep. they're really good. We, we do have a little bit of trouble with them slowing right down in winter and, you know, we have had sort of the whole crop collapse on us a little bit, but okay. we're sort of probably flogging them a bit, a bit harder than we should be in winter. I don't think most homeowners would be feeding off their houseplants to... Uh, gangs of, of <laughs> rabid exactly caterpillars on a on a sort of yearly basis. So yeah. Um, yeah, they can be a little bit thirsty when they're in sort of active growth in uh, in in the warmer months. Um, but sort of on the opposite side to that, in winter when the when the vigour is really low, um, they're they're prone to sort of root rots and and, and excess moisture. So they can okay. be a little bit finicky in yes. that regard, but. You know, lots of lots of houseplants are in some ways. So that's right. That's mm. right. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's very handsome. That's yeah. a really rich, deep, dark green, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a beautiful. It is a beautiful plant in some mm. ways. As, as much as it has caused me a bit of anguish over the years. <laughs> um, <laughs> you I, see it through different eyes to what we see. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I still see it through anguished eyes as yeah, well. Oh, and yeah, I've so been out of the game for a couple of years. We've, <laughs> we've been in situations where we've nearly lost a lot. We've had um, none of them sort of, uh, uh, you know, in a state that we could propagate from and, and none mm. growing vigorously. So we've actually relied on the um, the, the planting at the... Uh, conservatory at the botanic gardens okay um the nursery coordinator out there uh or nursery manager i'm not sure what his title is we've contacted um a few times to sort of bail us out um and they've helped us out with providing us with cutting material great that's just allowed us to sort of bolster our reserves um get through the winter and then have a good crop again over spring and summer because they they do propagate really easily yeah and really quickly that's right so they're the easiest they're in some ways they're the easiest thing to grow yeah um they're just not the easiest thing to have grow back in the middle of uh, winter when, mm. you know, they're at their lowest point of vigour and you continue to feed them off to caterpillars. So, yeah, it's just about balancing those numbers over winter, um, trying to have a large number of plants heading into winter. The difficulty difficulty we face, though, is that, you know, these sorts of things don't really have much of a shelf life. You know, you can't just sort of have hundreds and hundreds of plants in, in autumn and oh, that'll do us over winter. Mm. You know, yes, then, right. You know, you're depending on, on growing new new leaf all year and it just it just has a real low point yeah. in midwinter. Mm. 
I don't know, I don't know what the trigger is, but it's grown in a in a greenhouse all year round. So theoretically, it should keep growing all year round. But in winter, it's just that little bit cooler, less light. Yeah, well. I think it's I think it's might be a sort of photo period thing yeah. as well. Um, and they just less yeah, they're daylight. just just not as vigorous. I, I, you know, you can put plants in greenhouses, um, and you can heat this and you can control that, but you, you can't trick them a hundred percent. I think yep. they still know it's winter. Yeah, yeah, they're not complete idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, um, now Penny, we've got a very special supporter segment this morning. We have indeed. So. Um, do you want me to talk about them first? And we've got some calen- we've got some calendars and diaries. So um, both from both from my favourite, obviously, because I write for them and stuff. It, the Organic Gardener calendar for for this year has a beautiful photo of multicoloured carrots on the outside, um, and some terrific food photos inside, and chooks and capsicums and you know all sorts of different things. Um, and also a planting guide. So the, this calendar has a planting guide and, and each picture gives you a good explanation you know, or a bit of information about the actual um, what's in the photo and, and how to grow it. So um, there, uh, you can fill them in on the price. I will. Because I'm not sure what we finally settled <laughs> That's on. fine. Um, so, so that's a, a lovely calendar. And it's also got the companion diary, which also is full of beautiful photographs and um, last year things changed a little bit in the diary so the diary if you're a regular buyer you would have found there wasn't quite as much information in it but um, I got cross <laughs> <laughs> and told them they had to put the information back in again so you know with each photo there's a bit of information oh, good. There's, there's a good introductory um, piece on um, what to plant now and activities in the garden at the beginning of each month and at the end um, we also put in the planting guide so there's a there's a good planting guide what to plant now for each of the months at the end of the diary so I'm still a paper diary person um, I love my so paper am I. diary and I'd be lost and without think, it and I think this this is gorgeous um, so that's that's those two but we also have um, the Gardening Australia diary and calendar to give away. So the calendar is all about flowers and beautiful photographs. So there's no information on the Gardening Australia calendar. It's, it is just the photograph and, the, and obviously all the dates and everything. Right. Um, and the diary, but be- fabulous photographs. The cover, I don't, do you know what that is? Eucalyptus, maybe Rodantha? Okay. Well, it's, a, it's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous photo on the cover anyway, I think. Um, and the diary is the is the same photo on the cover, and again full of full of terrific um, photographs. The, each month there's a there's a little bit about um, a few things that you can do in the garden and a top tip, but there's not quite as much information in here. So there's probably more room for you to write. They're beautiful, but, but they are and they're diaries. and they're lovely photos. And yeah. um, you know, which, whichever one you decided you wanted, they'd be well worth week, well week worth to a page. Yes, week to a page, week yeah. to a page. and I, f- I discovered when I first got involved in this that people feel very strongly about what day it starts on. <laughs> they do. So it actually starts on a Monday. So some people like it to start with the weekend, and then, but this one starts on a Monday and goes through to the Sunday on for each opening for the diary. Yeah, yeah. It's good to know. <laughs> <Yep>. Excellent. <laughs> so those are the those are what we've got available, and I think we've got four or five of each. It's a bit, yeah. So anyway, you know all Fantastic. those Fantastic. Yep, yep, okay. Uh, these, I, should, I should add, these are, of course, um, 2020 yes. <laughs> calendars yes. and diaries. But um, 
uh, we're very grateful to um, to both Organic Gardener magazine and uh, Gardening Australia magazine for making these available to us. We um, we haven't quite reached our Radiothon target for this year, so this gives us an opportunity um, to uh, from the proceeds of these to add to our tally for the Radiothon for the running of the gardening show in, uh, specifically and, of course, 3CR uh, in general for the running costs for the next 12 months. Uh, but also it gives, it gives our listeners an opportunity to get in early and get organised um, so that you can have a diary or a calendar all ready for next year. And, of course, they make absolutely wonderful gifts. You could, you could purchase um, a couple of these or a calendar and a diary and... Uh, Put them aside for to give as gifts for Christmas or for anyone who's having a birthday coming up between now and, and Christmas. Uh, but uh, as I say, I'm very, very grateful to, um, to both magazines for making uh, these available to us. Now, um, uh, the, uh, normally the recommended retail price for any of these, the calendar or the, or the diary, is $19.95. We have a special discount today just for 3CR um, Gardening Show listeners. We're going to charge $18, um, and as I say, that, that, that is for a calendar or a diary or if you want um, both of them. It will cost you $10 if you want it posted. Uh, we can, uh, that postage would also cover a calendar and a diary if you want to have one of each. Um, or, of course, you could come into 3CR during the week and collect them uh, yourself, uh, or you can you can um, pay by credit card over the phone to us, and uh, we'll organise that postage out. Or you can send in a cheque to 3CR and ask them to post that out for you uh, as well. But uh, if you'd like to grab uh, one of these calendars or one of these diaries or more, as I say, or both. Um, you can ring Carol now on our outside number. That nine number is nine four one nine eight three double seven. So uh, we do have quite a few of them. So uh, we do need to raise our tally to reach our our uh, radiothon um, uh, tally that they gave us because uh, trying to run a radio station for the next twelve months, just even thinking about the cost of electricity is um, quite horrendous and we do need to uh, get some of the, that money coming in so that we can uh, do our part at the, as part of the gardening show, as part of 3CR. So uh, Carol uh, is ready on the line now, 94198377. Uh, Chloe, let's have a chat. You've brought in a couple of examples of uh, bits and pieces there. I brought in a super, super, super bright flower. It certainly is. Yeah, it's like the... Probably one of the brightest yellow flowers I've ever seen. That's putting wattle to shame. It really is, isn't it? <laughs> um, or I've, it's wattle on steroids. But, it, but it's, it's also wattle. the contrast with the dark green leaf. That's true. So that really sets it Yeah, that does set it off as well. So mm. it's a, an Australian native called Pomodera, Pomoderus lanigera dwarf. It's a dwarf form of, of the species. Um, I think its common name is the woolly Pomoderus, so nothing fancy. But the flowers have just... The flowers are on the, the ends of the stems and they've just, in the last week and a half, they've just started to flower and it is absolutely profuse, bright yellow. Um, this this um, plant is in my mum's garden at the moment and we bought it 
the the shrub is about gets to about one to one and a half meters, mm-hmm. and it's been in the garden for probably about eighteen months now. And uh, Mum and I went to Karanga Nursery to buy it, and I was like, oh, "You have to put this in; it's so bright." And she's like, oh, "It doesn't look very bright." And it was just like it wasn't in flower when we bought it. It was just the it was just it's kind of like a dull green leaf, and it doesn't it's nothing special when it's not in flower. And I said, "Trust me, Mum; it'll be great." And then it. We put it in the ground. It was, it's been growing. It's such a good grower. They're so tough plants, um, uh, these pomoderas. And it, it, st- it produced buds about, I don't know, two or three months ago. And it just the buds have just been sitting on the plant. And it did that last year as well on the fear seed we had it. Mum's like, oh, it's, it's not flowering yet. It's just hanging on to the buds. It doesn't look good. I was like, just trust me. It'll be fine. And then, bang, it opens. And it is so bright. It's just, it is such, such a fantastic plant. Um, I love pomoderas so so much. They're, they're they're forest understory plants, so they grow in you know those sort of shadier, drier spots. Uh, they don't look like much when they're not in flower. I mean, they just they're just you know a normal shrub when they're not in flower. But when they do flower, they just pop open, and it is just the absolutely most brightest thing in your garden at the moment when they do flower. And I I just absolutely love them. So. The Lanigera dwarf gets to about one to one and a half metres. Mm. It grows in a variety of soils. Um, it will take drier spots as well um, and, and shadier um, yeah, and, and shady positions too. So Fantastic. It's got a little bit of, um, you know, sort of furry, yeah, bit of brown fur on the... Felty grey underside yes, of the leaf. Yes, yeah, on the underside of the leaf and, and the stems as well. Um, and the new growth sort of has a little bit of red tips to it. Um, which is which is really nice. So um, they're just they're just a beautiful species. So I've bought in the Pomoderus lanigera, which is a medium shrub. I also um, and I sent a photo into Liz. There's a better um, specimen on the on the three CR Facebook page. Um, Pomoderus aurea, which is the golden Pomoderus, hence the name aurea. Um, little tiny little ground cover. I call it a tiny shrub, little plant. So again. Um, once the flowers open, they're bright yellow. They're not as bright as the Pomoderus lanigera, um, but the bright yellow flowers do really well in tough, dry spots. Where I have this golden Pomoderus is in a really, really dry, quite exposed part of my garden. So, and it's it's doing really well. And it got through last summer, which was its first summer on pretty minimal watering um and not great soil and it's it's doing all it's it's doing all right at the moment so fantastic i'm they very look, proud of beautiful it. Mm, yeah. yeah and i actually really like the leaves i know you said no oh, i'm with you i I'm love that really deep green in the felty underside so i think at, you know at other times of the yep. year it will look really good as well Be, yeah i'm with you being a plant nerd i i completely love it and i see the beauty in it as well and what i love about the pomoderas is um they're not a sticky brown native plant which a lot mm. of people associate with native plants is they're quite like they're very leafy mm. um, and there's a couple of species of pomoderas the pomoderas elliptica has shiny green leaves yep. and it's absolutely beautiful and that's a larger shrub so the genus pomoderas has such a huge range of sizes um, and they, they grow I think they're mainly on the east coast of Australia but um, that they'll grow in just so many different spots in the garden that and then those spots might be sort of troublesome spots where it mm. is hard, you know, mm. to get something going. So 
they're, yeah, they're just a fantastic genus of plant. Really underrated. They can be a little bit harder to find in regular retail mm. nurseries. Mm. Um, you might have to go to, and because it's a local species, um, local indigenous nurseries yep. and, and, and native nurseries as well. Do the bees go from Chloe? Um, yes, they do. Them? I haven't stopped to watch it too much, but um, I think yeah, sort they of do. Would have to be a yeah, a magnet yeah because it's an open flower insects, as well. Yeah, it would definitely it, be, and the nectar would be easily accessible. Yep. Just yeah. always on the lookout for uh, nectar plants for for our butterflies. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the type of flower shape and inflorescence that it is would would have to be an insect attracting mm. um, plant. Definitely mm. looks yeah. it. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's just beautiful. If I can just uh, quickly mention, um, if you are ringing in for a diary or a calendar or both, um, we do have quite a few callers. Don't give up. Carol will get to you, but uh, she is trying to work her way through some of the callers at the moment. So uh, just hang on and she will, she will be with you we, shortly. We can see all these little red lights <laughs> flashing. They're all switchboards lit up. So don't give up uh, because you are supporting the gardening show and 3CR. So uh, just... just uh, or, or if you did hang up thinking no, no one was going to get to you, you can try again because there are a couple of lines free now. That number again, 94198377. What's the other one you've got there, Chloe? Um, so this is a little um, grevillea that I brought in. Again, another underrated grevillea. The species name is Ceresia. And it's a grevillea that grows well in shady spots. So normally okay. we know grevilleas to be the plant that you put in a super, super hot, dry spot. But grevillea ceresia grows up through um, New South Wales in um, sort of shadier forest. Again, another forest understory plant. Um, beautiful little um, pinky mauve leaves on the end of the stems. Um, quite an open shrub. Um, open sort of droopy, weepy habit. It is a uh, medium-sized shrub. So I bought this from Karanga um, just recently. I've been wanting to plant one for ages. I've just replanted um, a little strip in my front garden that's underneath a lily pilly. So okay. it's going to be really hard. It's to pretty tough to get things It's going to be really tough. Yeah. yeah. So I got Grevillea ceresia and... Um, uh, um, Coria tucker time dinner bells, which is good in shady okay. spots too. But the Grevillea ceresia, um, yeah, I, I wish it was grown more because it is a really good one for shadier spots mm. if you do, and to do get flower in shady spots. It's grown in the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. Have I seen it there? I just it might be. I know that I've seen it somewhere. Yeah, um, I actually don't know if it is okay. growing in Cranbourne. Yeah. Um, so there's the pink form and a mauve form. Um, and, and they're two different subspecies. The subspecies Ceresia Ceresia is pink and the subspecies Riparia is mauve. And going by Riparia, which means sort of waterway, watercourse, I'm thinking mm. it might I'm thinking it may not be as good in a dry spot. So um the pink form I I got grabbed the pink form because yep. it's really, really dry where I'll be growing it. Yeah. Um one word of warning, the foliage is a tiny, tiny little bit prickly. So people that do um, suffer from um, skin irritability with, with grevilleas, um, it might get you, but it might also keep people out of a part of the garden mm. if you don't want them going and through really it. And really good for small birds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely really good for small birds. Um, yeah, and again, does really well in a wide range of soils um, and, and dry spots, dry mm. shady spots as well. 
yeah, which I'm always looking for plants for dry, shady spots because it's so hard. And I really didn't want to plant, have to plant a row of lamandra mm. or, um, or you know, I wanted something a little bit showy because it's in the front yard of my garden. So um, I want, I'm going to try these flowers, these flowering, flowering plants first. So we'll Excellent. see what happens. I'll keep you updated. Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay. Excellent. And the final one here? Yeah, so the final one is the other one I mentioned before is um, Coria Tucker Time Dinner Bells, it's called. It is a hybrid between Coria Glabra and Coria Decumbens. Coria Decumbens is a really cute um, dark green foliaged ground cover Coria um, with greeny red uh, flowers. And obviously they're the tube-shaped flowers of the Coria's. And Coria glabra is um, a slightly larger species of Coria, usually with um, lime green flowers. Uh, both species are really good in um, shady dry spots, but they're quite tolerant of, of you know, full sun mm. as well. Um, pretty wide range. So this one um, should get to about one and a half metres in its ideal conditions where I've planted it. I think I'll be lucky to like keep it I think I'll be lucky to get it to a meter mm. um, and the way I'm, when I planted it I mounded the soil so that any water that does sit in there and when I do water them it'll sit in the it'll sit around the the base of the plant yep. and then soak in um, because it's on a slight slope as well which yep. adds another um, challenge and did you but say that's for sort of dry shade as well yeah Some yeah of dry shade can be really good in, in sort of filtered Dry positions. Yep. I've got the dusky bell, uh, the dinner bells in another spot in the garden that's growing sort of closer to um, the drip line of a bottle brush tree and mm -hmm. it's growing really well. So it's a really, in again, a really dry. Yeah, good little doers. Yeah, in, in a really dry spot and bird attracting to the flowers. They just love them, don't yeah, they? they? I've do. got a Corrie Glabra in front of where I park my car. Yep. Every time I drive in there, you see the little birds sort of taking yep. off. And it's the little birds that it. love them as yep. well. So the spinebills and yep. honey eaters. Mm. Um, and because they flower in, in wintertime in the cooler months, mm. it's, it's food mm. for those little critters in the, mm. in the cooler months as well. So that's another reason. Yep. I love them, and I, I think I bring. I feel like I bring a courier in every time. <laughs> every time I come into the studio, I but I just like love them. <laughs> that's fine because Virginia is always bringing in a salvia, so you <laughs> yeah, can be the courier lady. I'll be the courier lady. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but Excellent. yeah, um, Tucker Time Dinner Bells is um, easily available in most retail nurseries, or there's you know there's a few different people that grow it that are around. So. Um, yeah, it's it should be a yeah you should be able to get to get hold of it if you do want it. And I think I did send a photo into the Facebook page. Okay. So excellent. Yeah, good. Yeah. Okay, um, we've got two more plants to cover, Tom, that you haven't managed to get to yet. Sure. So one of the other ones I brought in is a Sydney rock orchid, Dendrobium speciosum. Although doing a little bit of research uh, before the show, I realised that it's recently been reclassified to a genus called Thelichytron, but uh, I'm sticking with Dendrobium for now because that's, I guess, what I've always called it. Um, it's a, 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 a very beautiful orchid and one that I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say is, is relatively easy to grow, even, even in our sort of climate. They, they seem to do quite well. Um, multiple subspecies exist, um, some of which are considered by experts and, and we heard about all the different orchid society shows at the moment so I'm sure 
these these people would know better, but um, some of these subspecies are actually considered by some people to be entirely separate species. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure what subspecies we've got here. It's a it's a plant from a, a collection at Melbourne Zoo that I sort of inherited as nursery coordinator. There's a, a large collection of native orchids in our nursery that have been there for a while and we use them for sort of display purposes in the butterfly house. I think a lot of them have been donated over the years too. Yeah, you that's right. You get a lot of people, yeah. um, like ben, um, benefactors of the zoo mm. that, um, you know, yeah, pass away and one of their things is their special plants. I think you're right. I think they've definitely, the, the, this, this collection of plants has, has passed through a number of hands. So mm. sometimes you, you can lose track a little bit of, yeah. of some of the, and, and not being a real orchid expert myself, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what subspecies we've got. Um, but yeah, it's an incredibly tough, hardy, epiphytic orchid, small to medium flowers, but held in, in quite large sort of sprays. Um, this one here, you know, has, has sort of multiple flowers on one stem, maybe 15 or 20, but you see longer ones with, you know, 50 or 80 flowers in, yes. on, a, on a single sort of, um, on a single stem. Um, the flowers range from sort of off-white to cream, pale yellow, and there are some sort of yellow varieties. I quite like the way that the flower in bud is that sort of creamy, primrosey sort of greeny almost colour. Um, and then it's almost a pure white on this particular variety as it opens up. Mm. Um, very wide natural dis- distribution in 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 nature, um, from Victoria right up to North Queensland. Um, considered easy to grow, I guess, for that reason. It has such a wide tolerance of a range of temperatures, light and humidity. Uh, they won't they won't cop frost. However, we have had some heavy frosts. Uh, not so much this winter, but the winter before, mm. um, that that really sort of damaged our our existing or the population that, that that were outside at the time at Melbourne Zoo. Um, this one, however, sort of you know a little over 12 months on, uh, seems to have recovered pretty well and is in pretty good flower. Um, they are best kept in open, bright positions for good flower. Uh, avoid frost, as I said. Uh, they need really good drainage, so. A really open, sort of coarse pine yep, bark, pine yes. bark. Uh, is, yeah. is what we've kept them in and, and seems to be pretty successful. Or uh, you can put them up on boards as well. Yeah, well, being a being a, um, a lithophyte, so growing on rocky uh, outcrops and, and Bring rock faces. Bring out the big words on a Sunday morning, mate. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks. Um, I and, throw you off course. And also on tree trunks and stuff, you'll see them growing yeah. as an epiphyte. So, yep, there's another one for another you. Big word. Um, not not a lot of maintenance really. We remove the flower spikes, uh, liquid fertilizer throughout spring and summer, and they propagate pretty reliably from division. Yeah. So, a pretty handsome thing. Um, and yeah, not not that hard to not that hard to grow. Uh, we display them in the butterfly house from time to time, but over the years, as the trees around our butterfly house have, have sort of got to, to full size, we find that the interior of the butterfly house isn't quite as open and bright and sunny as we need it to be right. to get really good flower on orchids. Yep. So mm. we do have permanent plantings of orchids in there, um, but I, I'm just starting to have some concerns about whether we're going to get really good flower or not. Mm-hmm. Does but, that one have a perfume? Um because a if, lot of them do. If you get really, really close and you use your imagination, <laughs> um, I think it smells perhaps no. a little bit. Okay, slight. But um, no, I think I think you have to be yeah. Pretty Does perfume matter to butterflies? 
good question. Not too sure. I'm not sure okay. how Sorry. they sort of track down the, the nectar right. in, in the flowers and stuff, whether it's something visual or or an aroma that gets them over there. But, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure these are visited much by, by, by butterflies either as a nectar plant, but um, I'll, have, I'll, have to, I'll have to get back to you on that one. Walking yeah. around the butterfly house, the ones that the orchids that are there in flower, the butterflies aren't on them no. feasting. So not that I've seen. Okay. Yeah. No. So, it, I mean, we know they're attracted by colour, don't we? So I believe, yeah, yeah. I believe so, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I, I think it was about this time last year, Pam, I bought in one of my um, epiphytic orchids from home, and you said to me, does it smell? And I said, nah. And then in the car on the way home, the car was a bit warm. You picked it up. Absolute, the car was filled with a huge perfume yes. of the orchid flowers. It yes. was beautiful. It, so it just needed a bit of heat, a bit of warmth, I yes. think, and yes. sunlight. The, I think it's, is it Dancing Lady orchids smell like chocolate? And there's, you know, vanilla comes yeah, from okay. an orchid. Mm. And yeah. I don't know the species name, but the vanilla orchids are sensationally fragrant. Mm. So there's definitely, like there's definitely um, fragrant orchids yeah, out there. Definitely. I think Dendrobium or Thalichytron speciosum just isn't one of them. Well, no, no, some of the Dendrobiums oh, okay. definitely have a perfume sure. because... Um, because, in, in, in fact, the um, Australasian Orchid Society, their show's coming up soon, and, um, and every time um, we have a speaker from there and yep. he brings in some of his dendrobiums, the whole studio ends up being really, really mm. perfumed. So um, some of them definitely have quite a strong perfume. Maybe it's even down, down to that uh, sort of subspecies level too, where yes, some are maybe. and some aren't within, yeah. within fairly narrow sort yep, of groups. Yep, yeah. 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 While we're talking orchids... Um, Melbourne Zoo, oh, this is going back a few years now, but I know they were they were trying to um, uh, to uh, to uh, propagate up um, an orchid that had been found beside the railway line that was um, virtually extinct, certainly um, highly endangered. Do you know what happened to that project? Or look, it rings a bell. Um I'm not especially familiar with that. That that might predate my time at the zoo. Yeah, so. it, uh, it is going yeah. back. Yeah, I've, I've heard a few John years. John Arnott talk about yes, that. John Arnott spoken about Christmas it. Day one year, and yes, that um, was you know. Yes, like, right, I'm working on Christmas Day. This is actually pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not not one I've got an update okay. for yeah. you on. No, um, that's all right. There's been a, a few nursery coordinators over the years, and. Um, Perhaps it was yeah a bit before my time. I know they were madly trying to propagate time. it up to to release it back into the wild. Definitely yeah. rings a bell. I yeah. do I do I do recall uh, hearing yep. you know about it yep. um, from from colleagues and okay. whatever. But yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have a lot. No, of next time John's on, I'll, yeah, we'll I'll ask, ask him. him. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll ask around as well at okay. my end and and um, yeah, yeah. So there's an answer there. But it's great that the zoo um, as one of its its. Um, Almost offshoots, if you like, is is to um, to take part in some of these projects, particularly with endangered creatures or plants. Or absolutely. So the habitat uh, is is you know in many ways the the most important thing. Um, recently, two invertebrates have been added to our conservation master plan. Okay. Um, and that's the golden rayed blue butterfly and the keys matchstick grasshopper. Um, so yeah, they're they're things that sort of are still in the research stages now, um, and and we're not exactly sure what role we'll play. Um, but uh, yeah, it's very likely that the the you know habitat and and getting the sort of the food plants mm. and and those sorts of things right mm. will play a, a really big part in sort of a secu- securing the future 
of um, those two species in the wild in Victoria. Fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, so it's a great thing to be part of. And, um, yeah, certainly, you know, when I started at the zoo as a, as a nursery coordinator, I... Um, yeah, never quite realised how close I'd be getting to some of this uh, conservation work. So, yes. yeah, it's fantastic. No, I yeah, think it's, it's really brilliant. Good. Yeah, yeah. And your final plant, the Gunnera. Okay, excellent. So Gunnera manicata, this one I'm not aware of its uh, usefulness as an as a invertebrate food plant. I've just brought it in as an ornamental because I'm quite fond of it. Um, a clump-forming perennial with uh, potentially very, very large uh, rough textured leaves and I'm quite fond of the sort of spiked petioles if you look at the sort of base of the leaves they've almost got like um, sort of little velcro hooks on them just about uh, which I, I find really interesting it looks like something out of sort of Jurassic Park mm, it Grows in very moist, boggy conditions mm. and, and they need constant moisture, particularly if you want them to adopt that, that sort of massive leaf. Um, you see examples of it, although I've never actually seen one in the flesh, of people sort of standing under the leaf and the leaf being, you know, two metres or greater, <coughs> uh, or maybe perhaps not greater, but, you know, around two metres across. Um, we have planted, We have had them planted around the zoo and have found that in constantly submerged uh, conditions, they don't do too well either. So it is a little bit picky about just how boggy oh, right. the, um, the the sort of soil that they're in is. If the if the root zone is completely inundated in a permanent sense, um, they don't do so well, and they can sort of die out. So it just needs to be it needs to be really wet, but not too wet, I suppose, mm. for for the plant to do well. Um, they're propagated by division. I've found them to grow well in containers. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're interested in them as just a foliage container plant, they can be grown in a, you know, a decent-sized pot, a sort of 12-inch uh, pot or greater. Um, if, you, if you provide a deep saucer that, that might come up sort of a third of the way of the height of the pot and keep that, that saucer full of water, um, they, they, can, they can sort of be kept as a, as a, as a fairly interesting you know, uh, point, of, point of difference um, container plant. Uh, but I would suggest keeping them out of sort of direct sun and frost, and they can be a, a little bit, um, a little bit needy, I suppose. Um, and they're unlikely to produce those really massive leaves in containers. But yeah. I still think they're an attractive thing. They're a really interesting texture plant. Yeah. You know, oh, the, they are. Um, that sort of sandpapery uh, leaf and those sort of thorny petioles that I was talking about. I'm I'm a big fan of them. I find mm. them really interesting. Mm. So yeah, that's Gunnera manicata, or uh, it has a few other sort of um, uh, common names: giant rhubarb, Chilean rhubarb, and I saw one on the internet that was dinosaur food. So oh, <laughs> nice! <laughs> I guess that reinforces that sort of Jurassic appearance that they have. Yes, yeah. But they're not actually edible. I don't believe so. No, no, no. So no that's a good yeah, chili and yeah. rhubarb might, yes. might think it's edible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, rhubarb in appearance only. In appearance, yeah, yeah particularly the stalks. Of the red stems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Way I've too seen much them, roughage if I've you seen them that. growing in, um, you know, in gardens in Europe, sort of beside lakes or, or yeah. streams, and they just become massive. They're yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. do the flowers look, look the like? The flower is like a big sort of, uh, almost like a cone in the centre. Um, right. Yeah, I, I don't even know what you would. So, like call some of the ginger, ginger flowers. The yeah, similar. Some of those can be similar. quite cone-like before they open out. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to liken it to something. Um, 
No. Yeah, a bit like a, a ginger yeah. flower, I suppose. And do they, would they flower if you had one in a pot? I think quite possibly not. Yeah, have yeah. they flowered at the zoo I, yet? I haven't seen one in flower at the zoo. Yeah. Um, being, being in the nursery, I guess I, I see them in their sort of infancy yeah. in, in small containers. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, like that, that particular one there is in a six-inch pot. And they might take a couple of years to flower Doing quite fine. I imagine they would, yeah. Yeah. Mm. The other thing that the, the zoo um, has been very proactive about is landscaping around the enclosures. I mean, at one stage, um, it used to be, uh, you know, all the people up against the wire. Yep. <laughs> Concrete. Uh, yes, yep. exactly. But then, but then they completely changed the philosophy so that um, people are sort of hidden from the animals with all the landscaping. So you're virtually peering through shrubbery um, and, and, and the animals are feeling much more um, enclosed. Yeah, I, I would echo what you're saying, definitely, that yes. um, as, as a horticulture team, our role is in sort of setting the stage and, 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 and providing a, a backdrop and, and, and an experience for our visitors to feel like they're not just, you know, in Parkville, but that they've actually been transported to the place um, where the animal's from and where the sort of the, the, the conservation message that we're trying to get across is, is, is well sort of situated. Um, and, and also the, the, the role we play in creating those landscapes and, and those enclosures is not I- exclusively for uh, the, the visitor's benefit at all. Um, what you're saying about making it a an environment where the the animal can be in a positive welfare state exactly is, is perfect and, yes. and that's that's what we're really trying to do so our our project team in particular and all of our horticulturists uh, make make a real effort um, to make those those landscapes and, and particularly those those enclosure plantings as uh, as natural and as beneficial for both animal and, and mm. human visitor as possible. Mm. Um, and certainly both Melbourne Zoo, Zoos Victoria, the other two properties, um, Healesville and Werribee, and zoos around the world have turned a massive, a massive corner over the years in, in getting mm. the, the, the landscape right and, and, and placing the animal in an, in an appropriate um, exhibit. Mm. I'm sure it must um, uh, help to to calm the animals as well to be in in, yeah. in a space where they they're looking out on on natural um, vegetation rather than absolutely you know just wire and concrete and and people all staring at them so um, absolutely I would imagine yeah. um, that, that that that's exactly right yeah. um, and we want we want ex- exhibits that the animals are able to interact with mm. um, that the animals are able to seek shelter and are able to sort of seek I guess I guess privacy or or you know, um, not necessarily have to be on display all yes. the time, and that they can exhibit natural behaviours yeah. um, and and sort of be the animal that they're meant to be, um, rather than just being in a window box the whole time. Exactly. I know a, lo- a lot of the animals will have been actually bred in captivity, but do you try and and in in 
as much as you can match the the plantings in the landscaping to what would have occurred naturally, say in their in their natural home in in Africa or wherever they That's they originated right. from. That's right. So the plant selection, um, you know, given that that we're in in Melbourne, yeah, um, and you can't grow everything. You can't grow everything, <laughs> but the plant selection is absolutely motivated by what would have been the sort of um, you know their uh, natural environment. Yeah, the, yeah. the natural environment um, and and whatever sort of niche within that natural environment that that particular animal would have occupied, that's the brief or the, um, the uh, motivation for, for the plant selection. Um, obviously, mm. that needs to be balanced with what will do well in the exhibit, yeah. um, the actual uh, limitations or characteristics of that exhibit, you know, soil type, aspect, um, exposure... And, and Melbourne's at times uh, meagre rainfall, mm. um, but yeah, they're all considerations that are taken into account. And yeah, it, it's a it's a big undertaking at times to find something that, you know, the the animal um, is able to interact with from a toxicity point of view. Obviously, mm, we don't yep. want um, plants in enclosures that are, pose any any risk to to the animal or to the animal's welfare. Yep. Um, so there's that side of it, um, and yeah, resilience as well. So in in some instances, the animals do very much interact <laughs> <laughs> with um, with the plantings, yes, and right. the plants need to be selected to look good, um, fit the brief, and also be resilient to the conditions and the um, the, the animals' interaction with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. fantastic. I, I just one of the things I love about visiting the, the zoo these days is that you're not just going to see the animals; you're sure. going to see the whole experience, and it's a beautiful garden. Mm. Oh, it as is. As well yeah. as being somewhere yeah. where you can. So, as a gardener, I I love walking around and just looking yeah. at the plants. Well, I'm that pleased are to hear that. That's well. that's the aim. We want it yeah. to be as immersive as mm. possible, mm. Um, and we really want to sort of, I guess, get people to the point where they're on the journey and they're, you know, they're, they're visualising the animal and the sort of signage and interpretation mm. about um, the plight of that animal in the wild mm. in its home climate. And that's all really reinforced by that person having been taken on that journey and, and the stage mm. set in the right way yes. so that that message, uh, you know, mm. really percolates for people. And mm. you wouldn't get that message if it was just all concrete and iron no, bars. So, like, right. it is the plants that make it and people yeah. probably don't, Look at them. Non-plant no, well, nerds I, don't look yeah, at them. Well, when I'm just saying that you know, when you go, you sh- should obviously look at the animals yeah. and read the signs and everything, but don't forget to look at the plants yeah. as well because some sublim- of them are it is astounding. Subliminal to yeah. Them, yeah. Like. Oh yes, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, there's some really quirky plants in all the exhibits. So yeah, yeah when yeah. you do go, look at the animals mm. and the plants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, a couple of queries from the outside line. Um, now, a caller wanted to know the name of a rose she saw two weeks ago on ABC Gardening Australia that Sophie was talking about. Look, I suggest you, you ring go up Gardening Australia or you, go or you can website. go to the website. You can just watch the program you again can, on the website. Exactly. Yep. So, you, yeah. yeah, just click on the back episodes and you can, yep. you can watch the whole or, thing again. Or send them an email. They're really, pro, they're really pretty proactive. They are. They so, are very proactive. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's the... Because that's I didn't see that episode, so. Sorry, yeah, I didn't know no. So, um, but she also has a worm farm that seems to be blocking at the base. It's not full, as when she waters it, everything seems to block at the base. 
Uh, look, Any it's a ideas? tricky one. At this time of year, I actually wouldn't be watering my worm farm um, because we've had so much rain. And, and if you've got your worm farm out in the open, um, it, it's, the water filters through. And in fact, what I need to be doing is opening the, the tap a lot more. But it may just be that, that it's blocked. So you may, if you get a stick or a bit of wire and poke it in from where the tap is, it may just be that something's caught over the hole and that you need to release that to let the, to let the water out. Yep. So it shouldn't be blocking, but they do block from time to time, and it's just that something's got caught in there, maybe yep. a sort of clump of dead worms or, a, mm. you know, the, there's An a orange few things. Pit, like um, a bit of food or, or something. something that's got down there. Usually down you the, shouldn't yeah, Down get, the bottom there shouldn't yeah, be anything. There shouldn't yeah. be anything, but, you know, you, you just never know. Yeah. So just stick a bit of wire or a stick. Yep. I usually just pick up a stick that's on the ground. Yeah. And <laughs> poke yeah. it in, poke it in. Sometimes you've got to lift it off and actually, but, yeah. So I just look at unblocking it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Pam, too, um, there are four Gardening Australia calendars left, and all of the organic gardener items have gone. Okay. Which is fantastic. That's brilliant. Thank you, everyone. Yes, that's wonderful. So, uh, uh, four Gardening Australia calendars left. If uh, we're running through for another few minutes, if you want to jump on that line and uh, grab one, uh, that number again was 94198377 to talk to Carol. Penny, we should, uh, before we have to wind up the show, we should mention again um, those couple of dates you gave oh, out. Okay. Um, the, the Spring Into Gardening, which is the Paran Sustainability Festival on the 13th of October between 11 and 3. So I'm speaking, Jim Fogarty is speaking, Costa is there to sort of run the whole thing, and I think he's giving a, giving a talk as well. And um, uh, Sarah Otieri, who is a master chef person um so it i think and there's lots of stalls and people to talk to um so i think that'll be really interesting and then on thursday the 17th and saturday the 19th of october if you're in tassie um the royal botanic gardens in hobart have got the huge tomato sale and they'll have over 100 different varieties of heirloom tomatoes including some of these interesting orange tangerine tomatoes that i've spoken about before um, and and they, yeah, so some really unusual and interesting, but they're seedlings, so you've got to be there to actually buy them. And yeah. um, you can take them out of Tassie. You just can't bring stuff bring in, anything into in. Tassie. Yep. So you can buy, you know, half a dozen seedlings and take them on the aeroplane with you. Mm. you or on the car. You can't bring them back to exchange. No, them. you can't. <laughs> Indeed not. Or you can go down in the car. And, and it's, a great, it's a great couple of days. And, and um, Karen, as I said, will be there on the Thursday with me and we'll be selling the tomato book because mm. the Botanic Gardens still have some of our tomato books to mm. sell. Um, and um, and I'll be there on the Saturday, and I think we're both doing talks, but mm. I'm not sure because they haven't sent me the details. Yet. And the people down at Tassie, we should we should add, have done an incredible amount of research and sourcing some of these tomatoes, yeah. haven't yeah. they? Yeah, it's Margot who does it. Margot yes. White, and she's she's incredible, and she's um, she. You, you can't bring tomatoes into Australia, tomato seed into Australia anymore because because of the disease problems. But she's able to get phytosanitary certificates and pay to have them grown. And if they show any sign of any viroids, you lose them. Um, the, the customs won't let them in and yes. they, they'll take all the seed, even if it's only one of the plants that has actually got the viroid. Right. So you must not bring any tomato 
seed into Australia or have it sent from anywhere outside mm. Australia. Mm. Really important. Mm. Um, and, and so this is a chance to get some really unusual tomatoes. Fantastic. Yeah, I think some, a lot of them came from the States originally and you're now saying she's getting some from New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. so they, there are some unusual ones from the States and they've re, they regrow them over the years. Um, but yes, there's also these other ones and they have a huge seed bank to draw on as well. The seed's not for sale, it's only the seedlings yep. and all the money goes to the botanic gardens. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, very quickly, we'll try yeah. and uh, take that call that's come through. Hello, Lois. Are you there? No, no, I'm Marion. I'm waiting for Carol. Ah, oh, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Sorry, Lois. Uh, line seven. Line seven. Oh, that's right. Okay. No, she must have gone. That's fine because uh, we are we are running out of time. Don't hang up those people that are waiting for Carol because um because uh, she will. Hang around uh, to be able to take your calls. Um, but uh, we have run out of time for another week. Um, Tom, it's been great to have you in. Thank you. It's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. We'll and, have to um, get you back yeah, another fantastic time. Fantastic program. I'd love to come back. Excellent. Right, That's brilliant. A big thank you to, uh, to the rest of the team, to Penny, to Chloe, and also a big thank you to Susie and Carol who've been handling... All the calls, uh, that is our lot for today. But, of course, we will be back again next Sunday morning at 7.30. So, until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.